The text for our sermon tonight is John 19, verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this evening. God has again worked things together that I didn't plan. On Sunday, we preached on the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Tonight, we're going to see how Jesus obeyed this commandment. The timing is amazing. It's sort of part two of last Sunday's sermon. I can't take credit for it. I'm not clever enough to line things up that way. Now, there are a few things that we can safely deduce from this passage. First, we can deduce that Joseph was already dead. If he were still alive, Mary wouldn't need someone to take care of her. Why would her nephew take her in if her husband were still alive? Secondly, we can deduce that Jesus was already caring for Mary. He's picking someone to be her her legal guardian after his death. That means that at the time, he was the one caring for her. You know, we tend to forget that though Jesus traveled a lot, he wasn't homeless. John 1 tells us that he had a house in Capernaum. Also, there were people who financially supported Jesus' ministry. Luke 8, 3 mentioned a few. There was a treasurer, after all, among the twelve. Jesus had the wherewithal to support his mother, and he most certainly did. Thirdly, Jesus was looking well to the future. Yes, he was dying, but he also knew that he would rise again in three days and ascend to heaven 40 days later. So he wasn't turning Mary's care over to John for a few days. He was looking after her long-term welfare. So he turned the care of his mother over to someone he knew he could trust right then. The disciples were a very tight-knit group, first and foremost, because they were followers of Jesus. But also, many of them were, were related. I don't know if you realize that there were three sets of brothers among the disciples, among the twelve disciples. There were two sets of two brothers and one set of four. Also, four of the disciples were Jesus' first cousins. So the New Testament carries forward that familial nature of the Old Testament church. People just don't see it. Jesus intended that this feature persist into the New Testament. Though the church is now is made up of people of all nations, it should be the rule and not the exception that individual congregations be made up of families and that churches should be several generations old. John, the son of Zebedee, was one of Jesus' first cousins. This isn't speculation or unwritten tradition. Scripture tells us so. Jesus found his closest kin with the best means of doing so to care for his mother. So literally, eight of the twelve disciples were closely related. Four weren't. And again, this shows us how the New Testament form of the church is both the same and different from the Old Testament form of the church. New people are added to the church, and that grows the church. But the church primarily grows by way of the families that already belong to the covenant. God grows His church in the line of generations. There is no greater sign of divine judgment than that people either don't see this or don't believe it. Now, lest we get carried too far afield, I want to state the doctrine of the passage and then spend the rest of our time handling that. 
Our passage teaches that Christ's tender care of his mother, even in the time of his greatest distress, is a pattern for all children to the end of the world. Now, we're all children, so Christ's actions are an example for us all. Scripture teaches us that children owe certain duties to their parents. This is an indisputable fact. We mustn't be so modest as to believe that it's selfish on our part to require of them what Scripture requires. God's Word requires the following duties from children, and therefore from us all. First, fear and reverence. Leviticus 19, verses 1 to 3 reads, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Notice how God defines holy as revering your parents and revering the Lord's day. God ties those two things together. It is by the sacred bond of family and worship as a family that God builds his church. Any society whose families neglect to worship together, especially on the Lord's day, is a society that is on its way down the drain, and history bears this out. Now, when the Bible uses the word fear... It doesn't mean dread or terror. It means something like reverence, holding someone in high esteem. One of the greatest traits of the older Christian European culture was the belief that no matter how much one attained or accomplished, one had still not lived up to his ancestors. That's reverence. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt, and yet when his aged father Jacob comes to visit him, he bows down before his father. When Bathsheba enters his throne room, the great King Solomon stood at attention. Secondly, tender love. Now, this is not a mere duty. It is the root from which all other duties flow. There's nothing more natural than the notion that a child should love his or her parents. This knowledge, which I would almost put at the level of instinct, is created in us by God and placed that deep in our psyche for a reason. From that tender love should flow all of our other natural duties to our parents. Both the Hebrew and Greek words that are rendered honor in our English Bibles have the notion of prizing something highly, viewing it as your greatest treasure. Proverbs 17.6 says, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. That which makes a man glorious is his father, his heritage. How many feel that way today? Thirdly, obedience. Now make no mistake, the Bible demands that children obey their parents. We all know Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That passage tells us that obedience is right. That is to say, it is proper, it is natural, it is to be expected. In the Lord means that we obey our parents as Christians. We are bound to obey obey commands, or we are not bound, I should say. We are not bound to obey commands that violate God's law ever. But we are to obey our parents because we belong to the Lord. How can you claim to love your heavenly father when you don't obey your earthly father? It's as John says in 1 John 4.20. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't seen? Fourthly, submission to discipline. 
Hebrews 12, 9 reads, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Now, this issue, of course, grows more difficult with time. As we grow, we begin to be more independent. We're stretching our wings. And we often make the mistake of thinking that our growing independence equals exemption from discipline. You know, a five-year-old can't do anything about it when you discipline her. But a 19-year-old may be tempted to talk back or argue. Discipline, of course, becomes a thorny issue as our children grow. But there is something important that they need to know. As they grow older, children often fail to remember that their parents are never trying to stifle them or ruin their fun. Parents have their children's best interests at heart. I can assure you that for every sleepless night you've spent worried about your parents, they've spent a thousand more worried about you. Parents don't resign the second you turn 18. Parents don't retire from parenting. Everyone needs to realize that parents aren't meddling in your life or trying to control you or stifle your development as a person. They are always motivated by love and concern. The things that you've never encountered, they've seen a dozen times. You need to take it for granted that your parents do know how it feels. They do know what you're going through. They were there once too. You know, Mark Twain, in his comically ironic way, wrote, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Fifthly, faithfulness. We are all duty-bound as children to assist our parents and to not defraud them. I'm sure you're all aware of stories of old people who have had dementia or other uh, illnesses, or maybe they were just forgetful, and in their old age, they were taken advantage of by their children. We all know of fights over inheritance, whether of money or property. In Proverbs 30, 11 to 12, we read, There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. You see how God ties those things together? Disdain for one's parents, for their values, their advice, leads inevitably to a life that is ruined and destroyed and yet too blind to see its own condition. There's a short story called The Brothers, written by the Swede Bjornsson. And in the story, he tells of an old man in a village that had this beautiful gold watch. And when he died, his estate was put up for auction, and his two sons, Bard and Anders, both thought that the one would let the other have the watch. And it turned into a very ugly bidding war that ruined their relationship with each other. They had a vicious falling out, which lasted until Anders was on his deathbed. Now, it's fiction, of course, but it's entirely believable because we all know similar cases. Faithfulness to our parents means that we never jockey for position against our siblings. We don't try to be the favorite, to pit parents' love for us against love for our other siblings. Faithfulness to our parents means that we must never do or say anything to tarnish their reputation, even or especially after they have died. We must never ply their weaknesses and frailty to our own advantage. Do you know how easy it would have been? to manipulate Mary while she stood there in horror, 
beholding her firstborn son hanging on the cross, beaten beyond recognition? Jesus wouldn't let that happen. So he makes sure that the first person she comes into contact with is going to view her like he did, as mom. And finally, the final duty children owe to their parents is requital of their love, care, and pains for us in our upbringing. Some of you are old enough to remember the practice of baby books. My parents did one for me. It's got the silver spoon that the local bank gave my mom as a gift for being a new mother. It's got birthday cards and pictures and all sorts of things. But tucked away in the back, not that long ago, I found a letter that my dad wrote to me when I was a baby, when he was stationed in Germany before my mom and I moved there to live with him. I can't read the letter without a lump in my throat. I can hardly talk about it now, honestly. Now, we all know how many, how many nights we stayed up with colicky babies, how many diapers we changed, how many trips we made to the doctor over things that weren't as bad as we thought, but we didn't know better because we were new with this. You, you know what I'm talking about. Well, that, that letter from my dad made me suddenly realize in a very real way that someone, him, had done all those things for me. Now, how many years did my dad work lousy third shift so he could put a roof over our heads and food on the table, clothes on our backs, and provide costly Christian school education for me and my four siblings? How many thousands of meals did my mom cook? How many countless loads of laundry did she do? You know, my mom and aunt used to go out for lunch with the coins they found in the laundry. They must have done tons of laundry to go out as many times as they did. My mom used to put mushrooms in tons of our meals. She cooked with them all the time. My four siblings and I were all grown adults before we learned that mom didn't like mushrooms. And I think it slipped out accidentally in conversation. She didn't intend to spill the beans. All those years, she had been putting something in our food she didn't like. Hundreds and hundreds of meals. Because, well, your dad likes them and you kids all like them. If our parents' sacrifices on our behalf can't inspire in us a debt of gratitude, we must be very calloused indeed. Now, all those duties that we've just demonstrated or discussed are demonstrated in Jesus' words. Behold thy mother, reverence, love, obedience, submission, faithfulness, and requital of her care and nurture. They're all demonstrated in these three words. Remember when the child Jesus was left in Jerusalem and Mary and Joseph found him three days later. And Mary says, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought anxiously. And he replied, why do, you, why do you seek me? Why did you seek me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? He's saying, look, I'm the son of God. Remember, not the son of Joseph. This is my house. So this is where you should have looked first. Mary appears to have forgotten Gabriel's words, that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. She needed to be reminded that Jesus, or that God was Jesus' father, not Joseph. She was out of line. But then, Luke records, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Do you see that? He was subject to them. He literally created Mary and Joseph. And yet, because his mission was to keep the law for us, he obeyed the fifth commandment. Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, made under the law. 
Now, let's ask some questions prompted by this list of duties. Have we slighted our parents by irreverent words? Have we said things that harm their reputation to our children? You know how many cases there are of children getting into trouble with the law, into drugs, and all sorts of trouble because friends convinced them that their parents were dumb or too strict or were just trying to control you? We should never let anyone speak ill of our parents. Have we been disobedient or ignored their instructions? You know, there are people whose lives are a disaster and everyone can see it but them. Broken relationships, failed marriages, stints in rehab, a stretch in the can, and yet they're still mad at their parents because mom didn't like my choice of a job or dad disapproved of me moving in with my girlfriend. Their entire life is a disaster because they've disobeyed their parents and they're still unrepentant. Revelation 16.11 says... It speaks of God pouring out His judgment on men because of their sins. And then it says, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and yet did not repent of their deeds. Have we risen up against our parents in rebellion in reaction to their discipline or correction? Have we, instead of heeding their warnings, argued with them, asserted our independence, or simply kept our behavior a secret from them? Way too many kids have run away or moved out or fallen into drugs and sex because they were angry with their parents' correction? Have we been unjust and defrauded them? You know, there's something instinctive in us that wants to protect the weak. It's why we root for the underdog. We all grew up with that motto, pick on someone your own size. We defend puppies from big dogs. We shelter our babies. But many are often unfeeling when it comes to the elderly, especially elderly parents. Look, they're not dumb, they're not irresponsible, they're weak, and the weak need protection. We share no bond on earth that's closer or tighter than with family. But quite often, we're more understanding, patient, and polite to those outside the family than those within. Have we been ungrateful? Nothing is more heartbreaking than to see an old person who's living in squalor left to shift for themselves when they have living children who aren't three plane rides away. And one of the most amazing examples of parental love is the way that these poor souls make excuses for their children. Our status as parents of our children and as children of our parents lasts forever. Your parents may grow old and die, but, they're, but you're still their child, and you're still required by God's law to honor them. Hebrews 11.4 says that Cain's brother Abel, though dead, yet speaketh. Most of us, when we face difficult decisions, what's the first thing we do? We ask ourselves, what would, how, have dad, how would have dad handled this? So, though he may have already died, though dead, he yet speaketh. His wisdom still guides us. And therefore, we must never let anything ever damage our esteem for our parents. We must never criticize them and their values, ever. I think I speak for everyone when I say that I've heard negative things <coughs> excuse me, about grandparents or great-grandparents, and though I never heard these things until I was an adult, I still wish I hadn't heard them. I have good memories, and now those memories are tarnished, tainted. It's hard to love your heritage when you feel that you should be ashamed of it instead. Proverbs 11:13 says a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Now on the other side of the equation, 
Your children will grow up, marry, and have families of their own, but you're still their parents. You may no longer be called to govern their daily behavior, but you're still older with more wisdom. We have to let our sons be the fathers of their households, but we aren't retired as fathers. When you see problems forming and you recognize things because you can say, hey, I made this same mistake when I was starting out and I wish my dad had warned me, you should exercise your prerogative and give advice, give guidance. And this is something that our text demonstrates so poignantly. All of Jesus' disciples had fled and hid for fear of the Jews. Jesus was the most important man who ever lived on earth, let alone in Judea, and his enemies weren't deterred by the holiest life ever lived, the greatest sermons ever preached, or the most amazing miracles ever performed. They killed him. I guess it makes sense from a purely human perspective that his followers would duck for cover. But right there at the foot of the cross stands mom. Everyone else hid, but not her. She felt her motherly duties and stood by her son, though he had been arrested, tried, and executed. And we all know similar cases, right? Jesus is swallowed up in unimaginable agony. Our catechism calls it inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agony. Yet in the midst of this, he has the presence of mind to attend to his mother. He didn't put his status as her son on hold because he was dying. The Gospels tell us that Jesus had half-siblings. Jesus was the son of Mary by the operation of the Holy Ghost. But after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had a normal human marriage. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to Jesus. We need not pry any further Mark 6.3 tells us that Jesus had half-brothers named Joseph, Joseph, James, Jude, and Simon, and an unspecified number of sisters. We know from the Gospels that none of his half-siblings believed in him until after he rose from the dead. Would you like a demonstration of the blindness of unbelief? You can't top that. Can you imagine growing up in the same house as the Son of God and not believing in him? That's what sin does to people. Though some, if not all of them, later believed in him, at the moment of his death, he wasn't looking into the future to see what would happen. He needed someone he could count on now. And who was that? It was John. Jesus' words to John are full of tender emotion. Behold your mother. It's as if Jesus is saying, John, whatever care you'd give your own mom, give her. And what does the rest of John 19, 27 say? And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. This is John, the one who leaned on Jesus during the Last Supper. Kind of gives you the impression that he was quite young. How many hardened, crusty old fishermen would act like that, right? That's behavior that's typical of a kid. And actually, it isn't quite fair to say that all the disciples forsook Jesus. Yes, they all fled when when Jesus was arrested. But when Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, John was there. He smuggled Peter in. And now, when Jesus is dying and his enemies would want nothing more than to round up all of his followers and kill them too, who do we find with Mary at the foot of the cross? John. So it's no wonder that Jesus entrusted Mary to him. She was his aunt, but now he was to adopt her as his mom. 
And at Jesus' request, he did. I want to close with a couple of quick inferences from the doctrine of this text. Christ is not stubborn, rebellious, or careless. If he lives in our hearts, there can be nothing of these sins in us, at least not unopposed or unrepented of. Christ left us this pattern. We are Christians, and therefore it becomes us to imitate this pattern. And finally, our children that fear God are truly a heritage from the Lord. I don't think we can ever be sufficiently thankful for such a blessing. We all know of broken homes, and if ours isn't, we should fall to our knees in gratitude to God for His kindness to us. Let us pray.